Let's pray. Father, indeed, our waiting is done. From the creation of the world and the fall in Genesis 3 to a promise made to Abraham and then to a promise made to David, there was one to come who would redeem this world and bring righteousness. And Lord, we celebrate this season once again, that incredible gift, your son, Jesus, born in a manger for the purpose of dying on a cross for our sins. And Lord, as we sang even here in this last song, there's a day coming when the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords will return. <laughs> what a day. Father, guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. As you do, happy belated Thanksgiving and an early Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> this is called the Schizophrenic Sunday as we launch into the Christmas season. And I want to thank all those who helped decorate the vestibule, the sanctuary. If you were part of that decorating teams, would you stand? We just want to thank you. It looks gorgeous. Yes, thank you. We wore you out. Thank you very much. It is spectacular. It's gorgeous. And so thank you very much for doing that. Second Samuel 7. For as long as people have been backing out of their commitments, they have tried to come up with some scheme to ensure that promises are kept. One of those was the pinky promise. Remember those? That goes all the way back to the 1860s, at least in the United States. But it goes back even further than that because it was actually introduced by the Japanese mafia. <laughs> but that is true. They would cut off the pinky of the finger of the person who did not keep the promise. That is one way of doing it. And I bet very few broke those pinky promises, right? Well, this morning we are looking at some promises. In fact, the theme for this Christmas series is a promise fulfilled. And if you've not picked up your devotional, uh, there is one per family. We gave these out starting Sunday night, but there's one per family unit. It's a 25-day devotional put together by Ben. Ben, thank you very much. And Cindy Keeler helped. And there's 25 of our folks who've written devotionals in there. It's spectacular. You want to make sure you get a copy. They are free. You can't beat it. So pick one up and Merry Christmas. But the promise fulfilled. And so we thought this Christmas season, let's do something a little bit different. We're going to look at Old Testament prophecy and how it is fulfilled in the New Testament. So it's a bit of a course in biblical theology and looking at how God unfolds his history. And, and we'll see that as we journey here in even this morning, we're going to look at 2 Samuel 7. It's a text we've looked at before when we walk through the life of David. And then we're going to look at Matthew 1, genealogy, which we also looked at in the past at the Christmas season. But we're going to tease some things out differently as we look at the text. So 2 Samuel 7 is where we are, and to set the scene, Nathan the prophet has some bad news and some good news for King David. 
Bad news is you ain't going to be building a temple for God. He doesn't want one from you, uh, David. Your son Solomon can do it, but not you. You're a warrior. You've killed people. And that just doesn't jive. So you're not going to be... The good news is God has a promise that he wants to make with you, David. And that is seen here. We'll start... Let's start in, uh, let's, let's start in verse 12. When the time comes for you to die, David... The Lord says to, this again, Nathan relating what the Lord has stated, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. I will become his father, and he'll become my son. When he sins, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the wounds inflicted by human beings. But my loyal love will not be removed from him, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed him before you. Your house, David, and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. Nathan told David all the words that were revealed to him. This promise is given approximately 1000 BC before we get to little Bethlehem, the city of David. And notice the covenant or this promise that God makes. And again, a pinky promise is two ways. This is only one. And this says God saying, I'm making a promise with you, David. Even if your descendants break it, and they will, I will not break my promise I've made to you. Now, look what the promise is that he's made. Earlier in the text, it says, David, I'm going to make your name great. And that will be such, what a legacy David will leave. That carries forth even into the New Testament, which we will see. The Lord will give David and the Israelites relief from their enemies. Something the present Israelis would love to have. <laughs> David will have a son who will succeed him and establish a kingdom. And, and that son will build a temple. And David's king, or the Davidic king I should say, will enjoy a special relationship with the Lord. It's no coincidence when we get into the New Testament, we meet Jesus, who is the culmination of this promise, who is seen as the Son of God and the Father who will declare his pleasure in his Son, both at the baptism of Jesus and at the transfiguration. And finally, what's unique to the promise is he tells David, your dynasty, your offspring will be permanent, your throne, you will reign, and your kingdom, a realm will be established forever. Now, when you assess a promise that's made to you, 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 you factor in a few things, don't you? Not just what is the content of the promise, but who makes it, and, call me skeptical, I also want to know why. Why are you making a promise to me? We have some acquaintances who always promise they're going to take our kids out and do X, Y, and Z. It's become rather disappointing to our kids because we know it'll never be fulfilled and Mama Bear and Papa Bear want to, well, you know, that we have children in the room. But sadly, we know the why because it's always to kind of win us all over. And we also know who, you cannot trust them. The promise that David has been given is we know the what, we've just seen it, we know the who, that is God. But do not miss the why. Yes, it's to exalt David and to 
love on him. But there's more to that. Look at verse 13. It says, I will establish his kingdom, and I will build a house for whom? David's name? Solomon's name? No. The Lord says, it's for my name. This is God saying, I'm making a promise to you, David, because it's my reputation that is on the line. And he says in verse 14, I will become your father. Now, look at verse 22. Look how David responds. And he, he exalts the Lord and says, may it be done. But notice what he says in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O sovereign Lord. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. What we have heard is true. Who is like your people, Israel, a unique nation on the earth, that God went to claim a nation for himself and to make a name for himself? You did great and awesome acts for your land. You made Israel your own people. Jump down. He says, you, O Lord, became their God. So now, O Lord, make this promise you have made to your servant and to his family a permanent reality. <laughs> it's all about God's reputation. The promise he made back to David is going to be fulfilled in Bethlehem, and you better believe it's going to be fulfilled because God's reputation is on the line. This is for his glory. It's not for David's. It's for the Lord's. <laughs> and this is exactly what I'm going to argue we will see in the New Testament. Jesus is the son of David who will ultimately fulfill the promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel 7. And if you're looking at your notes, the first principle there is Christmas reminds us that we can trust God's promises. His reputation is at stake. It, if he falters in anything he's promised, I'll neither leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always into the ends of the earth. Any of these things, then he's, he's a fraud. He's a liar. He... he, he Let's say he, he is truly loving and he meant it, well, then he's incompetent because he can't do it. Hebrews 10 states, he, the Lord, who makes the promise is trustworthy. There was a politician who had visited a village and met with the town leaders and the politician said, what can I do for you? And the, the politicians or the town people said, well, sir, there, there's two things that we need. The first of these is we have a hospital, but we have no doctor. I can take care of that, said the politician. He whips out his cell phone, starts talking off to the side. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, taken care of. Great. He goes, what's the second problem? The people said, easy. We don't have cell phone reception here. <laughs> Oops. Some of you are a little slow. It must be the turkey. We'll, we'll move on. <laughs> Unlike the politician or any other person who fails to keep a promise, we can trust our Lord to fulfill his promises. His speech isn't just words so that he can win a vote in popularity. The Lord is not going to become distracted, lose enthusiasm, or that he didn't allow enough time to fulfill it, or that he has a scheduling conflict, or that he lacked the power to do what he said he would do. Time and time again in the Old Testament, how I wish we had, we'd be here all day as we unfold the, the promise made to David and how it reoccurs throughout the Old Testament. God is going to keep his word. He is faithful. He is faithful to David. He is faithful to the Israelites. He's faithful to his people. And think about the demise of Judah and Israel. 
they split under Rehoboam. <laughs> the, the civil war, the, the, the country's in disarray, and you think, where's the promise you made to David? What does Jeremiah 33 state? The Lord compares the certainty of the Davidic covenant, this is in the midst of chaos, to the fixed cycle of day and night. As sure as it is, God will keep his promise. Well, let's look at the exiles. The Babylonians come in. They haul the people away. They destroy the, the temple in 586 B.C. It all seems lost. Where is that Davidic promise, God? Why didn't you keep it? Can't you hear the people asking that question? Either, God, you truly can't love or you can't accomplish what you say you're going to do. And the covenant seems to go the way of the dodo bird. Yet in the midst of the exile, Isaiah 11, this prophecy is given. Therefore... There will be one who comes forth, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Wow. In the world which we live, Christmas is a great reminder God keeps his promises. Johnny Erickson Tata, quadriplegic due to a diving accident at the age of 17, writes, real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives. This is a lady paralyzed from the neck down, but in understanding God's character, in trusting in his promises and in learning on, leaning on him, resting on him as the sovereign who knows what he's doing and does all things well. Wow. God made a promise back in 2 Samuel 7, a thousand years before Christ comes on the scene. And time and time again in scripture, Jeremiah, 1 Chronicles, and we go through a ton of Old Testament texts that repeats, God will keep his promise. He is sure to do so. And then we get to the intertestament period, the time between the old and the new. I could show you a slew of Jewish writings that says Christ is coming back. Even the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's manuscripts that talk about God will keep his promise. And it shouldn't surprise us when we get to the New Testament and Christ is being born, we see this. You, you, you heard the text from Luke 1. Look at Matthew 1. Let's turn to the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. Matthew 1. If you get to the Italian prophet Malachi, you went, you're not far enough. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, a text we looked at some time ago, but I'm gonna, I want to look at it at a little different angle in light of the promise that God made to David. It says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I know some of you are breaking out a rash. Some of you are so excited. You love genealogies. This is the best thing going. All right. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. On the list goes into verse 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David the king. Woo! He's the only one who gets a title, by the way. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. The list goes on in verse 17. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to the present day with Christ being born, 14. Now, there's a couple things with genealogies. We've talked about this before. They're never meant to be exhaustive. We can skip generations. I could say I'm the son of Wilhelm Friedrich Hofeditz. That was my great-great-grandfather. That is not my dad. But it could still state that, and that's how it's happening here. Matthew is intentional in his genealogy. He is rehearsing the history of Israel. We're going to talk about this. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews. And what are two things you have to show? Number one, if you're writing to a Jewish audience, you have to say, did the Messiah really come? That promise made to David back in 2 Samuel 7, is Jesus really the fulfillment? And if he is, where's the kingdom? Right? Last I knew, he ascended into heaven. Where's the kingdom? Where's the Davidic throne? Where's the promises that were made? And so David, or Matthew, is going to highlight this, but he, he, right out of the starting gate, he gives us this genealogy of Jesus. It's important. Matthew walks through some of the nation's spiritual highs and lows. There's non-genealogical information. He mentions David as king. He mentions the, the, ex, uh, the um, exiles, deportations. There's unusual references such as the mention of Judah and his brothers, not to mention women who were not usually included in first century Jewish genealogicalists. Why? Because again, he is telling the history. And we walked through this some time ago. Again, it, it's, he's trying to place Jesus within the framework of all that God has promised to Israel. We see God who is gracious and sovereign and his hand through the midst of it all. But do you see the emphasis on David? This is key. Again, Matthew has to show that this promise made to David, which was rehearsed throughout the Old Testament and in the Jewish writings in the intertestament period, that this is the one that we have looked for. And look how he does this with the genealogy. He mentions David's name five times. It's mentioned at the beginning. It's mentioned at the end. You'll notice that there's an emphasis on the number 14. Did you catch that? That's key. In Jewish writings in the first century, they would give numeric value to letters. It's called gematra. And this was common. David's letters in Hebrew were dalet, aleph, dalet. The dalet was worth four points. <laughs> An olive was six. Four, six, and four is 14. This is intentional. Matthew is playing off of David's name. In fact, David's name appears number 14 in the genealogical list as well. It's very intentional. No, 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 no. God keeps his promises. And Matthew is highlighting this. Look at this. You would expect a tax collector to play with numbers, wouldn't you? I tell you. And that's exactly what he does. He shows us this is the one. One commentator writes, David's name is mentioned immediately before the genealogy, twice at its conclusion, and is honored by the title king. Uh, he says, this is not a coincidence. 
It was for emphasis. And then, I wish we had time to go through the, the gospel of Matthew. You realize 30% of the references to David in the New Testament occur in Matthew's gospel? It's not a coincidence. He will mention David's name 17 times. Joseph will be addressed later here in chapter 1 as the son of David. The promise of a messianic deliverer in 121. The blind men at Jericho will declare, the son of David, have mercy on us. Pilate will question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus will affirm. The soldiers mock him because of his title and at the crucifixion, he is declared king of the Jews. Why? Again, why is it so important? Matthew must show us that the promise that God made to David is being fulfilled in this one, this Jesus of Nazareth. This is the promised one that we have looked to. This is our Meshua. Again, a first century world would have been very familiar with 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11. We know that because all you need to do is look at the Jewish writings from the intertestament period all the way up into rabbinic writings into the uh, 7th century AD. It's, it, it oozes a promise God made to David has to be fulfilled. And Matthew says it is in Christ. This one who God has kept his promise, but also this promise which brings peace. And I look at Christmas, and this is in your notes there, principle two, is that peace provides, or Christmas provides peace on account of God keeping his promises. There's not a lot of peace, is there, when someone says, well, I'm going to do, we'll, we'll see you next week, and I'll be sure to bring X, Y, Z, and they don't show. <laughs> not a lot of peace for them or for me. No. no, Peace comes from knowing the Lord keeps his promises even in the midst of sin in the world. Not even Satan can thwart this plan. He's had a thousand years to try it. <laughs> and boy, did he, he seem to be fairly, fairly successful throughout Israel's history. I mean, look at verse 3. Let me just walk through the genealogy list. Verse 3, you got Tamar. Oops. If you know your Old Testament history, she seduced her brother. We won't go there. That was Judah. They had twins, which are mentioned, by the way, in the genealogy list. You know, if you've done genealogy work, you don't include the horse thieves, right? These kind of people you omit. Everyone is fawn whatever. <laughs> I'm fawn hofeditz. You know, you throw those in. No, no, no. It's very clear. In fact, if I'm making up the story about Jesus trying to elevate this one as the Davidic king, I'm not going to mention Tamar. Whisk her into the back and hope that no one sees it. But he's not done there. Look at verse 5. Rahab's mentioned. She was uh, the lady in red. Remember her? Ill repute. Verse 6. We don't even mention Bathsheba's name. We just simply say she's the wife of Uriah. Oops. 1 Kings 15, David did what was right and uh, did right was in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. What did he do? He had an adulterous affair, and then he kills Uriah to try to cover up his sin, which we looked at some time ago. Peace, because God keeps his promise. 
in a world that's chaotic. It's not done there, though. He mentions verse 7, Rehoboam. There was a louse. Pagan offerings and splits the country. His mother was an Ammonite. She wasn't even an Israelite. Boo. Boo. Then verse 10, there's Manasseh. When the guy offers up his child as a sacrifice. The most wicked king Israel ever had. And you mentioned him? I'd have skipped over his name. No. Perhaps this morning you can relate. You say peace? <laughs> you don't walk in my shoes, David. Whether it's a physical diagnosis, it was another horrible Thanksgiving with no one around the table, or perhaps it was who was around the table <laughs> that gave you indigestion. Maybe it's Christmas coming, you don't have a job, and all the bills are stacking up. Cling to the promises that God has made. He will keep them. And there's peace in the midst of it. Jerry Bridges states it well. The Bible is full of God's promises to provide us for spiritual, to provide for us spiritually, even our daily bread materially to enter, to never forsake us, to give us peace in times of difficult circumstances, to cause all circumstances to work together for our good, and finally to bring us safely home to glory. Not one of these promises is dependent, watch this, upon our performance. What did David do? Really nothing. What did Solomon do? Really nothing. What did Joseph and Mary do? Nothing. But God in his grace reached into time and space and said, I'm going to keep a promise and I'm going to do it through Jesus of Nazareth, my son. And Jerry Bridges closes, they are all dependent on the grace of God given to us. Indeed, peace comes in knowing that the Lord's promises are laced with his grace and his mercy. God still kept his promise when David committed unpardonable sin. God kept his promise when the Israelites mourned the death of their beloved great king Solomon. God kept his promise when the country was ripped in two in order to, uh, under the incompetent leadership of Rehoboam. God kept his promises when the political leader Manasseh abused his position and promoted gross wickedness in the land. And God kept his promise when all dreams and hopes seemed to be dashed when the Israelites became refugees during the Babylonian exile. This is our God. He's a promise keeper. One of the carols that I love at Christmas is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Listen to the lyrics of this song. I, I heard the bells are ringing peace on earth like a choir they're singing. In my heart I hear them, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But listen to the next verse. And in despair I bowed my head. There's no peace on earth. Hate is strong. It mocks the, the, the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. Peace on earth. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, when peace on earth, goodwill to men. Do you hear the bells they're ringing? The light the angels are singing? Open up your heart and hear them. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
So when you pull out that nativity set and the straw goes flying all over the house <laughs> and you put the little pieces together, you remember God keeps his promise. And in that comes the peace, this rest that we have in knowing this is the one. Well, you say, Matthew, thank you for showing us. And again, we could look at various texts in the gospel where Jesus is identified as the son of David, but where is the kingdom? After all, the first century Jews were looking for a royal Messiah, a Davidic king who would fulfill the promise that was made to David, overthrow Rome. They were looking for a king that would eliminate corruption in the temple, a king who would eliminate poverty and food shortages, a king who would bring healing, bring answers to the medical industry, and resolve political upheaval. Sound familiar? <laughs> This is what they were looking for, and that's why they could not compute that Jesus, wait a minute, you're going to a cross? No, 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 no. We got a crown, we got a crown over here, we got a throne. Let's 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 redo this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> After all, God made a promise to David, and we know what that means. While Jesus is the promised one, and his message was continually presented, it was rejected by God's people. And ultimately, Jesus' first task was to save his people from their sins. As it became evident, Jesus didn't come to sit, uh, uh, sit on David's throne, though offered to the Jews at his first coming, but to die on a cross. This does not nullify God's promise to David. I would argue that never in the New Testament is the hope of Israel and the work of the son of David changed to a mere spiritual kingdom. Scripture clearly teaches. I mean, Psalm 89, let me give you a couple texts. I will not break my covenant or go back, the Lord says, on what I promised to David. Jeremiah 23, I, the Lord, promise that a new time will certainly come when I will raise up for them a righteous branch, a descendant of David. And later in Matthew 19, the Lord is told, we're told he will return as the victorious Davidic king to reign. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, in the age when all things are renewed, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you will follow me. You will then sit, he says to his disciples, on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Acts 1, 6, his leaders state, the disciples, are we setting up shop? Is this it? And Jesus states he was not there to restore the kingdom to Israel at that time. And in Acts 15, Simeon is told that God has first concerned himself to select those among Gentiles, a people for his name. The words of the prophets will agree with this. Then the text says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David, the promise I have made to him. Just as Jesus came to earth to fulfill a promise, confirming that he is the son of David, a promise made a thousand years before, Jesus will return to fulfill the promise he made. Psalm 132, the Lord made a reliable promise to David. He will not go back on his word. And that leads us to the third principle. As I look at that nativity set, I see, yes, this is a God who keeps his promises, promises that give us peace, but also promises that give us hope. Because there is a day coming, a future, 
when we will see our Christ return. Recent polls show that 84% of Americans say they are extremely or very worried. And one out of four of Americans report they have nothing that gives them hope. One out of four. What's alarming is these stats are doubled from 2016. We live in a great opportunity a time of great opportunity, do we not? We have the hope. <laughs> There's a promise that's been given and it's fulfilled in Jesus this Christmas season. As followers of Jesus, individuals who know the truth concerning God's promises, the future is already secured. At the end of the day, no matter what view of the end times you take, Followers of Jesus, let me give you a couple, live with confidence or hope in a world of chaos. Why? Because we've seen the certainty of God's word taking on flesh, lying in a manger in Bethlehem, the city of David. In this, we find hope, knowing that the Lord will keep his promises. Again, just look at the genealogy to see the hand of God moving through time. Hebrews 9 says, These all died in faith, not having received the fulfillment of the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded and they embraced them. Why? Because they knew who their God was. He's a promise-keeping God who does not operate on our timetable. He operates on his timetable, but it will be fulfilled. And we have confidence or hope in knowing eternal life awaits all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because he keeps his promises. And as we saw earlier, not only does he, it's his reputation is on the line. As the text we looked at last week, he has called us before the foundation of the world. He's given us his son, and if we've placed our faith in him, he's given the spirit. He's got a lot at stake. Corey Timboom, many of you know who she is. She hid Jews in the hiding places, the story, how they hid Jews during World War II in Amsterdam. She makes this great comment. Who can add to Christmas? The perfect motive is that God so loved the world, the perfect gift is that he gave his only son. The only requirement is to believe. The reward of faith is that you will have everlasting life. <laughs> Do you know this, Jesus? Our world is, it's amazing how many commercials no longer say Merry Christmas. Used to, you'd see even the nativity set in the back of the room as they were panning the Christmas decorations in the house. You don't see those much anymore either. But he's still the reason. He is why we celebrate, because God, who made a promise back to David in 2 Samuel 7, it was literally fulfilled in this one called Jesus, and this Jesus is coming back, and he will reign as the Davidic king, because God keeps his promises. As Christ followers, we should not rest in the valley of doubt and fear, but climb to the hilltops of security, basking in the hope we have in our victorious Savior. It's not a wish, 
but our hope is riveted to the certainty of the promises to the future that God has made. The promises of God should be embraced, and I mean tightly in our arms. For it's there that we find for our souls comfort and strength in our wanderings, our temptations, our failures, and our sufferings. And so, if you haven't set out the nativity set yet, or you walk by it in your house, may we all be reminded we serve a God who keeps his promises. A promise that he made to David comes embodied 1,000 years later in a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, bobos in the back of the manger scene. This is the promised one. Our promise-keeping God can be trusted, and for that we have peace. And in the presence of conflict and all that we endure, we rest in hope in knowing the future is secure. Great news the angels brought. <laughs> Great news that brings joy to all people. Our Redeemer lives because God keeps his promises. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, we, we did a bit of a quick journey through biblical theology, but this thread, this Davidic promise that you made this thread, if we turn the tapestry over of Scripture, it's woven through. From 2 Samuel, we see that thread, and it, it moves through the historical books, the prophetic books, and when we come to the New Testament, it just comes screaming out. This is the one we have looked to. You have kept your word as you, you say you do and as we know you do. And Lord, in the midst of all of life's difficulties and curveballs and struggles, Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us when we struggle. And may we cling to the promise that you have given us that we know. Because Christmas is a reminder you're a promise-keeping God whom we can trust. And Lord, thank you that the story didn't end in Bethlehem. It didn't end with the shepherds and the angel. It didn't end with the wise men and Herod. <laughs> it didn't even end with the death on a cross and a resurrection from the tomb. Because there is a day coming when the son of David will return and he will reign on this earth. Lord, help us to be faithful as we cling to the promises you've given. In Jesus' name, amen.